Well, two weeks ago, we launched our current series through the Apostles' Creed. And uh, today is the third message in that series. And we are considering the second clause of the Creed, which says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Uh, We Christians are defined by one primary and essential mark. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of our church or denominational affiliation, a, a Christian, a true Christian, is someone who has repented of his or her sin, embraced Christ as the only Lord and Savior, and gladly and willingly identified him or herself as his disciple. This has been true of authentic Christians down through the ages. The confession regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ here in the Apostles' Creed comprises its largest section. It chronicles the storyline of the life and mission of God's Son from his conception by the Holy Spirit to his incarnation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, from his crucifixion and burial to his resurrection on the third day, from his ascension and exaltation at the right hand of God to his promised return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, I'm so tired of religion. Don't give me doctrine and theology. I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with all of that. Just give me Jesus Christ. And yet, even in simply speaking the name of Jesus Christ, we are making a profound and far-reaching theological statement. He is not simply Jesus. He is Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. An accurate understanding of Jesus Christ is therefore essential to an accurate understanding of God, and that's where we're going this morning. Will you stand with me and let's declare our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you remain standing? Let's just pray again together. Lord, as we come now to your word, would you speak to us? By your Holy Spirit, make these things clear to us, things that oftentimes are confusing, that oftentimes uh, seem shrouded. Lord, would you uh, just uh, turn back the veil that we might get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, get a glimpse of his holiness, get a glimpse of your greatness, and go from here different people. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. When we recite the creed and come to the second section, the very first thing we declare is that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus is his proper 
given name. Or more accurately, in uh, his name in Greek is Jesus, and that in turn is the Hebrew name Yahushua, or Yeshua for short. In Jesus' day, his name was exceedingly common. Uh, if any mother in Israel went out into the street on any given day and shouted the name Yeshua, the heads of a lot of little boys would turn, thinking it might be their mother calling them home. Not to mention a lot of husbands who uh, were wondering momentarily if they were in trouble. Uh, His name identifies him as a real historical person. Jesus, the son of Mary from Nazareth in Galilee. The evidence for the historicity of the person of Jesus of Nazareth is overwhelming. No reputable objective historian would deny the existence of this distinctive and influential person, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the man who is considered to be the greatest historian of Jesus' day, a man named Josephus, includes a description of Jesus in his books. Though he was not personally a believer in Jesus, Josephus could not have ignored Jesus' life and his widespread influence and still have maintained his reputation as a credible historian. Luke records in his gospel that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to announce to Mary that she would become the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. In the course of that conversation, Gabriel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And when an angel likewise appeared to Mary's fiancé, Joseph, this time in a dream, he said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, what's the connection? Why the insistence on that name? It's because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. When an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds on a hillside outside Bethlehem, their message was the same. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He came to be our Savior. In a conversation with his friend Nicodemus, Jesus defined his mission with these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to be our Savior. On on another occasion, Jesus again defined his mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To Timothy, the apostle Paul wrote, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. The writer of Hebrews said of him, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the apostle Peter announced in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And that's just a sampling. So when in the Apostles' Creed we speak the name of Jesus, we are saying that he came to be our Savior. The one who humbly confesses his or her sin and transfers his or her trust to Jesus and in humility and desperation seeks his mercy and grace, at that moment receives forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. As the old hymn writer put it, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Well, Jesus is his name. His title is the Christ. The Christ Christ is not a surname like Hayes or Appleby or Sept. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I assumed that the Christ was the family name. His name was Jesus Christ, so it made sense to me that his parents had to be Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. And out at the end of the driveway on their mailbox, it said, Christ family. Find him in the phone book under Christ Joseph. No one ever told me any different, so I went on thinking it was true until I learned otherwise. I even wondered for a while if Jesus may have had a middle name because I often heard my best friend's dad yell, Jesus H. Christ. But it's not a name, it's a title. Christ is the English form of the Greek title Christos. And when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, The Hebrew Hamashiach, or Messiah, meaning anointed one, was replaced with the Greek word Christos. In the Old Testament world, when Israelite kings were crowned and when priests began their their official service, each one of them was anointed with oil as a symbol of the Spirit of God resting upon them. And having been anointed, they were called the anointed Hamashiach, or the Messiah, the anointed one. So the Jews regarded the Messiah, the one, the one and only, as a significant end times leader who would come and renew the covenant, restore the kingdom, sort things out, set things right for the nation of Israel. Various interpretations circulate still today regarding what a Messiah might look like, what he might do, and when he might come, most of them either inflated and fanciful or very limited and somewhat depressing. Very, very few expected a Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of his people. And yet the prophet Isaiah saw it clearly 700 whole years before Jesus came. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He came to be our Savior. His title is the Christ. He came to fulfill God's promises to Israel. And the New Testament demonstrates convincingly, for those who are willing to seriously consider it, that Jesus is the Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. Identity matters. I recently heard a story about an 11-year-old kid, Nick Smith, who attended a pro hockey game with his dad and his brother. Prior to the game, Nick had entered a raffle um, in hopes of having the opportunity to go out on the ice and attempt to slap a three-inch hockey puck into a four-inch hole from 90 feet away. And his family was... uh, Startled, surprised, shocked when they heard his name called out over the loudspeaker. Long story short, he, he went out on the ice, took an adult-sized hockey stick, gave it his best shot, and doggone if that three-inch puck didn't go into that four-inch hole. And the crowd went wild. And he went home with one of those giant checks, you know, in the, in the amount of But three weeks later, he had to give all the money back. Why? Well, it turned out that at the crucial moment when his name was called, Nick Smith was actually out in the parking lot getting something out of his family car. So when his dad heard Nick's name called, he thought fast and sent his other son, Nate, who was Nick's identical twin, down onto the ice. And it was Nate, not Nick, that slapped that puck into the goal. It was Nate who received the check for 50 grand and took it home. And the three of them realized during a family conversation about honesty and integrity that they had to return the money. Identity matters. I ate in a Mexican restaurant in Edmonds with my family a few years ago. When the waiter brought the check, I looked down and read with a smile, your server today was Jesus. It was kind of a cool moment, but I realized that this time it was pronounced Jesus. Identity matters. You, you've heard that Jesus died on a Roman cross. But because the name Jesus or Yeshua was a very popular name in those days, it's pretty likely that more than one of the tens of thousands who died on Roman crosses were named Jesus. 
But only one Jesus who died on a Roman cross was able by his death to atone for sins and reconcile us to God. Jesus, the Christ. Identity matters. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice that Paul didn't say Jesus and him crucified and leave it at that. He was careful to say Jesus Christ. On one occasion, Jesus was with his disciples in northern Israel in the district of Caesarea Philippi. And while he was there, he asked them this pointed question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He came to be our savior. He is the Christ, and he is God's only son. One of the essential identifying markers of Messiah was that he would be a direct descendant of King David. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God made this promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. The promise was that there would always be a direct descendant of David on the throne of Israel. And one of the names of Messiah given to them according to that promise, is son of David. In one of his many contentious interactions with the Pharisees who regarded themselves as Jewish religious elites, Jesus asked them a pointed question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit that is speaking by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Messiah is son of David. 
But David called him Lord. In that brief interaction, Jesus established that that the Christ was indeed the son of David by physical descent, but that even King David had understood that the true identity of the son of David was as the Lord, the son of God. He is monogenes. Would you say that with me? Monogenes. Say it again. Monogenes. You can read it monogenes if you want. Skinny jeans, monogenes. But the Greek pronunciation is monogenes, and it means one of a kind or one and only. In his preamble to his gospel, John wrote in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten, that is monogenes, God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice that John clearly refers to Jesus as God. Jesus came to show us the Father. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Audacious. In that well-known statement in John 3.16, Jesus said to his friend Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten monogenes son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The early church wrestled with questions regarding the exact nature of Jesus Christ or and of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, and everybody has questions about the Trinity. And they wrestled with the question of the relationship of God the Son with God the Father. In 325 A.D. in Nicaea, Italy, a council of church leaders came together in response to some heresies that had arisen in the church to to dig into the scriptures and to provide direct answers to these questions. And the product of their work was a carefully crafted, crafted doctrinal statement that we know today as the Nicene Creed. And here's just a portion of that creed. We believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now there's a lot there, isn't there? Notice just a couple of things with me. Jesus is declared to be the only Son of God. And then the word begotten is used twice. And this is what we saw, for example, in John 1.14 and John 3.16. And in the first case, the Nicene Creed states that the Son of God 
was begotten from the Father before all ages. Reflecting the Greek monogenes, this expression means that God the Son is eternally the Son, that he has no beginning and no end, but he is eternal God. In the second case, it says that the Son is begotten, not made. Again, God the Son is not the created. He is the creator. And then it says that he's of the same essence as the Father. In John 10.30, Jesus said, and this got him stoned nearly, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And though the triune nature of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three co-equal and co-eternal persons, distinct yet in one essence, one God, will always be a mystery to our mortal minds. One of the truths that we can affirm is this, that the Father always had a Son, and the Son always had a Father. Even that is an inadequate way of expressing it, but perhaps it gives us a handle. They are eternally God the Father and God the Son. So when we read in Galatians chapter 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, we recognize that he was already the son at the time when he was sent. He didn't become the son sometime later. In the incarnation of God's son, in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a sending action. Jesus himself said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And later, as he was commissioning his own disciples, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For the Son, God the Father, is always him who sent me. Jesus is God's final and definitive revelation of himself. The writer of Hebrews began this way long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the climax to the biblical story because he came to make good on the promises that God made to the patriarchs and to show his faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. As the Apostle Paul said, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Finally, Jesus is our Lord. 
He is our Lord. Following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul provides powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus willingly took on human flesh in the incarnation to identify with sinful humanity. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and this led to the cross. Not as an accident, not as a victimization, but rather as God's predetermined plan. And Jesus willingly emptied himself. Not only did Jesus condescend in order to take on the form of humanity, but he willingly subjected himself to death for us. In verses 9 to 11, Paul wrote that as a result of his work on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter said the same. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, before he is our Lord, he is the Lord. Before he's our Lord, he is the Lord. On, on one occasion in a conversation with a gathering of Jews, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice his verb tense. He, he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And in doing so, he invoked the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. It is the name by which God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush. His name is not I was or I will be. But the name of the everlasting eternal God is I am. I am the eternally existing one. And Jesus identified himself as the eternally existing one. He is eternal God. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the implications of that is that to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. It was a dangerous thing in the days of the Roman Empire to declare anyone Lord but Caesar. He was regarded as Kaiser Curios or Caesar the Lord. But the most basic creed of the early Christians, their central affirmation of faith, was Jesus Curios. Jesus is Lord. And when we confess that Jesus is Lord in Christ, we are declaring that he has no rival, that he has no equal, that he is supreme in all of the universe. We're declaring that we no longer accept the story our culture is telling us. 
We're declaring that there is no political party or movement, no political system that can ever solve our greatest problems or accomplish our salvation. No sensual indulgence that can bring us real peace. No human leader who is worthy of our worship and our obedience. We're declaring that any and all other earthly allegiances we may have are merely temporal. We'll always, always, always be subordinate to our submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So let me ask you this morning as we close. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? See, there's no more important assessment. There's no more important decision, no more important judgment that you will ever make in your life than the one you make about Jesus Christ. You can't afford to get that one wrong. So the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So who do you say this morning that he is? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you that you cared enough to send the very best. And Lord, may we not miss our moment. May we not miss the opportunity to place our trust in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.